0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is going to be one of those shows that happen about once a month where we just go through the pile of materials that are gathered for this program and sift through it and talk about things. We might be joined uh, during the course of today's show by some of our old pals, but we might not. I don't know. Either way, I think we're going to have some fun. At least I'm going to do my best uh, to try and make that happen. I do want to remind you that uh, June 5th marks the transit of Venus. That's next Tuesday. You may want to make some plans to get some welding glass and projection systems that I'm sure you you all used on the the annular eclipse uh, last week. Dust them off, get them out and observe Venus passing in front of the sun. If you miss this one, it won't happen again until the year 2117. And while I'll wager there probably are going to be some humans that will see see the transit on Tuesday and in 2117, I am positive I won't be one of them. And unfortunately, dear listener, neither will you. But doggone it, let's begin this program as we like to do with on this date in history, the date in question being the 31st of May. It was on May 31st in 1880 that the first National Bicycle Society in the U.S., the League of American Wheelmen, was formed in Newport, Rhode Island. And yes, we were meaning to bring you an interview with the good people over at the Bicycling Hall of Fame, which is located right here in Davis, California, but we have not yet made those arrangements, so stay tuned for that. It was on May 31st in 1889 that the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania was virtually wiped off the map as heavy rains and a neglected dam combined to cause one of the worst floods in American history. In fact, I'm sure it was the worst flood in American history. More than 2,200 people died. Red Letter Day in the History of Breakfast. On May 31st, 1895, John Harvey Kellogg of Battle Creek, Michigan filed for a U.S. patent for, quote, flaked cereals and process of preparing same, unquote. We would note that Dr. Kellogg's invention has proved to be a boon for children and bachelors ever since. On this date in 1902, Great Britain and the Boer States signed the Treaty of Reneging, or something like that, officially ending the three-year-old Boer War. That war originated when gold and diamonds were discovered, igniting old animosities between the Boers and the British. Yeah, the Boers originally moved inland, away from the coastal areas, controlled by Great Britain to do uh, their own thing. And when, uh, when these major discoveries of gold and diamonds were made, well, the British took a whole new interest in what was north of their provinces. And eight years later, on the same date, the Union of South Africa was founded. On May 31st in 1977, after three years of construction, the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline running from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez was completed. By the way, most of the oil produced in Prudhoe Bay goes to Japan. Although I bet these days the Chinese get quite a bit of it. This should be a reminder to people that if they do build that pipeline to bring the tar sands oil from Canada south, a lot of that's going to be sold to other countries as well. And finally, on May 31st in 1994, the United States announced that it would no longer aim nuclear missiles at targets in the former Soviet Union. Of course, when I read that out of our book, Today in History, put out by the History Channel, I would note that as far as I know, there actually still are missiles aimed at the former Soviet Union. So we're just going to report it as written and hope that it's true. Our quote today comes from Conan O'Brien, or at least his writers, and is, The media are reporting that American universities are being infiltrated by foreign spies. They say everyone should be on the lookout for any student who is paying attention and taking notes. Our quote of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, which is, It's being reported that 74-year-old Morgan Freeman is planning to marry his 27-year-old step-granddaughter. The whole story sounds a little creepy, unless you hear it narrated by Morgan Freeman. Finally, our joke of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, and I want to put a special thanks in to his writers for today's show. And our joke is, a college student launched a group called African Americans for Romney. Of course, after a couple days, he was forced to change that name to That Black Guy for Romney. Our stat of the day is $1 million, as in the price of his single parking space on sale in New York City. The space in a condo building has its own real estate broker. Says Realtor Robert Knackle, The reality of New York City is that people are willing to pay more for a parking spot than the average person in the country pays for a home. This correspondent hopes to travel to New York City sometime next month or the month after, and we'll see what I can do to round that story out. And our bonus data of the day is 54, as in the number of strikes thrown by a 12-year-old little leaguer who pitched a perfect game by striking out every single batter he faced. 18 men came up, 18 men struck out. Of course, in this case, I guess it's more like boys. But yes, Jacob Tarau of West Seattle threw 54 strikes and 27 balls, struck out 18, and led his team the Rays to a 4-0 victory over the rival Braves. In case you're curious, the major league record for consecutive strikeouts is 10, set by Tom Seaver of the New York Mets back in 1970. Of course, knowing the history of Little League, it'll probably turn out later that he was actually 22. All right, without much further ado, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. in the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for fighting injustice, after Bill Wisseth of Wisconsin picketed a restaurant that asked him to leave its all-you-can-eat fish fry when he'd had 12 fillets. Said so the 350-pound Wisseth, it's false advertising. We asked for more fish, and they refused to give us more fish. Well, on the other hand, a bad week this week for karma after Alexander Galarza, 27, of Florida, was arrested for allegedly smashing a car windshield during a domestic dispute by hurling a statue of the Buddha. And it was surely an ugly week this week for the unfettered free market after a British auction house accepted bids on a vial of Ronald Reagan's blood, drawn while he was being treated for an assassination attempt. Said the anonymous seller, I was a real fan of Reaganomics and felt that President Reagan himself would rather see me sell it. And the news article does not contain this guy's name or we would probably give him the jackass of the week award. All right, what else we got? How about from the only in Cuba file, this item. More than a year after the first fiber optic cable has reached Cuba, the island nation still has no high-speed internet connection. The undersea cable, which was laid from Venezuela last year with much fanfare and praised by Fidel Castro, has never gone online. Cubans speaking anonymously have told the AP that embezzlement and corruption had strangled the project. Several top telecom officials were arrested, but there's been no more official discussion of the project. The cable was intended to provide high-speed internet access to schools, hospitals, and government offices, but not to home computers. I'm just hoping that uh, the Castro brothers can just (laughs) move off this earth so they can start bringing that island into, like, the 20th century. Although I guess we would settle for, you know, post-1958. We want to note that congratulations are due Elon Musk. And we say that not just because we like the name Elon Musk, but in part also because we've expressed skepticism on this program that, uh, that private... Enterprise would uh, be able to get rockets to put payloads into orbit because that takes a lot of extra energy. Putting something up, this so-called space tourism, when you go up, you enter space and then come back down again. That doesn't require nearly as much fuel as you need to accelerate something to the velocity needed to go into orbit. Well, SpaceX has pulled it off. Some what were described as non-essential items were ferried up to the International Space Station, and apparently some of the astronauts boarded this, uh, this uh, cargo container. And uh, I guess a good time was had by all. An article by Kenneth Chang in the New York Times noted that uh, while he doesn't have the same name recognition as Richard Branson, the founder of the Virgin Empire, or Paul Allen of Microsoft, or Jeff Bezos, the Amazon.com billionaire, Elon Musk, a computer prodigy and serial entrepreneur, is catching up. I must say, really, I'm impressed by this achievement. This is, this, is, uh, this is no mean feat. Musk, who was described in the article as a cocky businessman, was born in South Africa and is, was one day short of his 48th birthday on his day of triumph. He's best known for helping found PayPal and selling it to eBay in 2002 for $1.5 billion. He's also uh, the founder of Tesla Motors, which uh, four years ago brought to market a head-turning all-electric sports car. You know, if you're so inclined and you've got a billion dollars, you can accomplish quite a few good things in this world. And if the truth be told, you don't need the billion. Of course, you're not going to get into orbit without it. Or at least several hundred million, anyway. This is a most curious tale, and we think we're going to have to talk about it a little bit uh, in some greater length on some future program. Speaking of space, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, on late-night television... One of the few things that, you know, I can stand watching are some of these science programs. They always seem to love to have these space disaster (laughs) shows on Discovery. Ways the Earth could get destroyed from space. But, you know, for the most part, the science on those is pretty good. As opposed to the, you know, ancient aliens. Where the guy with the mad scientist hairdo comes out and says, The blocks in Cusco, Peru are exactly the same as on Easter Island. So far apart, how could this be? But lest I digress, uh, there was one pretty cool program talking about uh, stars and the number of great breakthroughs that we're making with some of these telescopes that we have in orbit. Uh, they were really really quite excited about brown dwarfs. And, you know, I don't know if you're excited about brown dwarfs, but, you know, you might want to think about it. There are many that suspect that there are more uh, of these objects out there than there are stars in the universe. A brown dwarf, for those keeping score, is not quite a star, but more than a planet. It's an object with enough mass to be what would be considered a very large planet, except they're hotter than what we think of as a planet, at least based on our local solar system. They now have three different classes of brown dwarfs, the L, the T, and the Y. So if you took that astronomy class and learned that acronym, Oh Be a Fine Girl, Kiss Me, For the different classes of stars, O, B, A, G, F, G, M, oops, I left out K, that would be G, K, M, girl, kiss me, you now have to add L, T, and Y. I think someone should invent a a mnemonic device that you can actually now, uh, well, actually, no, that's a bad idea, scratch that. But it was cool watching this program as some, some astronomer was just just waxing philosophic about the fact that these Y-class of, uh, of brown dwarfs are actually so cool, you could touch them. And here's, it is weird to think of a quasi-star with a temperature of 80 degrees Fahrenheit, but uh, being as dim, they're not really giving off much, I mean, the brightest ones are giving off a bit of light, but the others you have to locate to using infrared. It's pretty cool stuff, and, I, and I'm still amazed that the Kepler spacecraft is able to pick up the dimming of a planet going in front of its star uh, of, of something like one percent. Meaning, if some equivalent of the Kepler spacecraft was looking out uh, from from the Earth direction from deep space, you'd be able to notice Venus moving in front of our sun by the dimming of the sunlight. We're going to have to make a call down to our good friends at the Planetary Society in Pasadena, maybe Matt Kaplan of Planetary Radio, and talk about some of this cool stuff, because it is cool. And while we can't resist uh, mysteries of space, there's some mysteries closer to home that are uh, pretty intriguing. Case in point, New Scientist Magazine, May 12th issue, has an article titled Material Man about, well, a guy that appears to have been a remarkable inventor. And we've talked in this program in the past about uh, great uh, individual inventors who had their, uh, their discoveries stolen from them. Well, apparently uh, the guy that uh, came up with this particular breakthrough, a man named Maurice Ward, was uh, so fearful of this, uh, of, his, of this being stolen from him that he never really got it marketed properly. The article described how, on a television program, a British TV show titled Tomorrow's World, back in March of 1990, he did a rather stunning demonstration McCann handed an egg to a TV producer and said, This is no ordinary egg. He painted it with a substance. He then applied a blowtorch, and with the flame barreling onto the egg's surface, uh, which should have caused it to crack within seconds under the blistering heat, well, nothing happened for a few minutes. McCann then picked it up, held it with his hand, said, It only just feels warm. He then cracked it open and out-dribbled a runny yolk. Ward noted, It hadn't even begun to start cooking. The trick had to do with the thin layer of white material that Ward had daubed onto the eggshell. This is a man with uh, no scientific training. He concocted this stuff on his own. He named it Starlight. Now, the article in New Scientist uh, by Richard Fisher asks, well, you know, had Ward fooled the TV producers? Was Starlight a hoax? Well, apparently all the evidence suggests it was not. Subsequent tests in Britain... And the U.S., by our respective governments, have confirmed that it was the real deal. The article describes Maurice Ward as a former hairdresser who in the 1980s reportedly ran a small plastics company in Northern England. He was also kind of a classic English eccentric with a white beard, bow tie, and divergent mind. The picture of him looks something like a cross between Colonel Sanders and George Bernard Shaw. Now apparently people at the UK's Ministry of Defense took an interest in what Ward was up to and they asked their senior scientist Keith Lewis to take a closer look. At that time he was the head of the Thin Film Optics Lab at the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment. About a year and a half after his TV appearance, Ward finally agreed to let Lewis run a series of tests on the condition that he would not analyze Starlight's ingredients. The first thing Lewis and his colleagues did was to fire powerful laser pulses at the material and noted that there was very little damage. Despite the the fact that these pulses had 100 million joules of energy, which Lewis said was enough to drill holes in bricks. Subsequent tests at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico and the Atomic Weapons Establishment on the Island of Foulness in the UK confirmed that this stuff was real. It had an astonishing ability to deflect heat. Naturally, the people that make nose cones for missiles took an interest, or the people that want to protect buildings from uh, burning down. So at one point, apparently, Boeing got interested, very interested in this, and talked to Ward for years, but couldn't come to an agreement. Evidently, Boeing and other would-be investors uh, kind of balked at the fact that Ward wanted million-dollar sums, but was reluctant to actually hand over the recipe. Of course, in that, he may have been inspired by what happened to Colonel Sanders, That was another great moment of watching late-night television. A bio piece on uh, on Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken fame talking about how after he sold the company for $2 million, um, John Y. Brown, later Kentucky governor, turned it into a $200 million company within about 10 years. They kept Sanders on as kind of a figurehead and changed his formula, enraging him, apparently. As I understand it, uh, as the show reiterated uh, the gravy was what he thought was his crowning achievement, and uh, when it turned out to be expensive and hard to make, they shelved the recipe and substituted it with something else. Chris Sanders did extract a certain amount of revenge when they came up with the extra crispy version of a (laughs) Kentucky Fried Chicken. He refused to endorse it. And when asked by reporters about the new gravy they were serving, he said, that stuff's like library paste. But anyway, to finish this bizarre story about Maurice Ward, he passed away last year but told people, ah, oh, there's no worry about if I, should, if I should go. My family knows how to make it. And evidently they do, although Ward's widow told new scientists that the family would prefer to remain private about just what their plans are for starlight. In fact, the magazine noted, Ward is gone, but the need for his novel material remains. And unfortunately the need for taking a break remains, so let's do that. listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more in segments <laughs> two and three. Don't go away. Asian. He lived by himself in the swamp He hunted alligator for a living he just knocked him in the head with a stone The Louisiana and the gonna get you, Amos. It ain't legal hunting alligator down in the swamp, boy Now everybody blamed his old man For making him mean as a snake